that's gonna happen is, is they'll pass out, they'll have a hangover. How are we gonna get in there if they pass out, Junior? Cut it back low. They're not gonna pass out, no nuts. They'll throw up first. That's right! We can't get in the room if they're dead! You stay on the ground and breathe. Turn it down. Turn it down, damn it! Don't watch you. Don't you start up with this shit. Shut it down, both of you. I'm turning it down. Hey, keep his ass off of me. I'm not killing anybody. Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted to punch movie in its face more than I had last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. Fifteen minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. It was kind of like an afternoon, you like drive time type thing. Or like the type of podcast you listen to at work. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. How we doing, beautiful people? Welcome back to another edition of the Film Effect Podcast, a weekly show that deep dives into a different film each episode in an effort to give it that full film effect treatment. I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this is Panic Room. 4,200 square feet, four floors. Hardwood floors throughout, as many as six working fireplaces. Oh my God, it's huge. Yes, I don't know if you have living help. No, 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 it's just the two of us. Huh, that's strange. What? Is this room smaller than it should be? You're the first person to notice. No one from our office had the slightest idea. It's called a panic room. What? A safe room. Castle keep in medieval times. Fort concrete walls, 
buried phone line not connected to the house's main line. They have your own ventilation system and a bank of surveillance monitors that covers nearly every corner of the house. Who wants to keep someone from prying open the door? Steel. Very thick steel. My room. Definitely my room. Tell me about it. In Panic Room, a divorced woman and her diabetic daughter take refuge in their newly purchased house's safe room when three men break in searching for a missing fortune. Man, I can't believe this film came out 20 years ago. That's like the first thing I was thinking about when I was watching this this morning was how this was like 20 years old already. It's crazy. Getting old. Yeah, makes me feel old. <laughs> yeah, it makes me feel old. I remember it like... You know exactly like when this came out uh in theaters i remember when it was on like home video working at the video store i was like damn i'm old yeah dude it's it's, it's crazy thinking about that kind of stuff but you know here we are talking about panic room what is this uh second fincher film we've covered now on film effect because we did seven last fall and i think that's it we haven't gotten to alien three yet and haven't seen fight club <laughs> in a minute so yeah, I think this is the second film that we've covered uh, from his filmography so Social far. Social Network. That's I've been talking. That's the one I've been wanting to cover, dude. I love Social Network. It's it's one of my favorites, and I I, I know the reason behind uh, you know waiting so long to do it is I know Sean and Justin aren't fans of it, so kind of been dragging my feet with that one. But uh, yeah, I didn't know you were a big fan of it. That's good to know. So maybe we can cover that one sooner than later. Make that three David Fincher films. But yeah, here we are, Panic Room. I would argue this is his least talked about film. Don't really hear too many people talk about this. I mean, hell, this film doesn't even have a proper Blu-ray release. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just crazy to think about. Like he made Fight Club. And then this, like, just such different movies and, like, tone oh, yeah. and message. And it, it's just crazy to me. Like, you go from, like, Fight Club, like, this high concept, like, you know, just out there movie. And then you come to Panic Room, like, this mainstream suspense. Like, you, your grandparents, your Mima, and your Peepaw can watch this. You know, it, it's just crazy going from one to the next. 
Yeah, especially when you're talking about you comparing settings. Like you've got Fight Club, which takes place in this big, broad city, and then you've got Panic Room. It's just one house. We're in one setting. This entire film, um, and this is this is kind of like the low key film that Fincher wanted to do after a film of uh, like like Fight Club's magnitude. He kind of wanted to just kind of take it easy with his next film, but still add his, you know, touch to it. That's why we have the big 3D opening credits, just like state-of-the-art for his time. I remember that being a big thing when it premiered. Um, <laughs> it stands out so much watching it now. Yeah, I got it. Like, oh, yeah, they definitely put a, the budget on the on the um, credits. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot, you know. I, I had a lot of thoughts running through me watching this today, and uh, looking forward to talking about it. So let's jump into it and talk first-time viewings. Uh, it's, it's just that. You see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time so technically that's my second time and i don't i don't i don't want to suck at it so if i'm not up to uh, i think this is another one where you and i were together opening night i vaguely remember you me and my ex seeing this at the time mj yeah yeah we definitely saw it in theaters because like we saw i mean around that time it was always like me you and mj and then maybe like a couple like burleson like or something random or person or something like that yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, it was always like uh, us three, <laughs> yeah, pretty much seeing whatever was coming out around this time. So yeah, I definitely remember seeing it then. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. And in theaters. I don't remember much about it. I, I'll be honest; it wasn't super memorable. Like, but we went uh, to I, Yeah, I remember we saw it. It was opening night. I mean, literally every time I say saw that opening night because I say it a lot. It's the truth. I mean, that's what you and I used to do. Friday nights, film came out, we go to White Marsh. And uh, check the fucker out, you know? Why wait? Yeah. We usually had Friday nights off for whatever reason. Or, you know, if we didn't see it Friday, we saw it Saturday. But we were always there opening weekend unless something was going on. And I do know that we saw this one opening night. I was really looking forward to this. I, I remember I remember March of 2002, like, pretty well when it came to, like, movies and stuff. I was on my way out of high school because, like, I graduated in, in uh, June, and uh, yeah, because a lot of these movies would come out in the fall, and yeah, I'm just kind of going off track here, blockbuster mind. Anyway, uh, so yeah, opening night, you and I together, easy peasy. Uh, let's talk live top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Hey. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a... Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection, the song is Radiation oh. Ruling the Nation. Let's do top five favorite films that are set in a single location. Only fitting, you know? Um, I'm going to remember this time, though, to bring up my honorable mentions. So, without further ado, I have four. <laughs> uh, this, Panic Room, Funny Games, and kind of like True Grit with uh, the last episode, I, that both versions are, are together in this one. 
Uh, so yeah, Panic Room, both versions of funny games. Green Room, can't leave out Green Room, badass movie. And Saw. Yeah. So, got those four, got to mention them. All right, so my number five is Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, I was never... What's up? Nice. No, what's up? No, I was just going to say, I was never a fan of funny games. I I'd never picked up on that movie, Funny versions, Games. Which version have you seen? Both. I never okay. liked either of them. I mean, they're, much, it's kind of the same to movie be honest with that, it. when you think about it. It's kind of a shot-for-shot shot remake, kind of the way uh, Gus Van Sant did uh, Psycho in 98. Um, yeah. I don't know why. I just never liked them. Like, it seems like something I would probably like, but just never really stuck with me for... Whatever reason, I'm sorry to interrupt that. I, I just popped it into my head. Oh, it's okay. Not, not a problem at all. Uh, no, uh, I, you know what? I can understand where you're coming from. It's, uh, I guess, not everyone's cup of tea. It's uh, it's asking a lot to sit through that movie, especially when, you know, there's not much of a happy ending. And it's really dark, and the tone's just bizarre. You got that whole freeze frame part of the film that kind of, like, goes comes out of left field. But, uh, I don't know. I think that's why I've liked it so much over the years because it's it's unique I'm using that word again but yeah so um how about you you have any honorable mentions if not what's your number five uh yeah i got a couple honorable mentions this was uh you know, like a pretty big category there's like been a lot of movies i've seen that, uh, fit this criteria kind of mm-hmm. um so my first one is one we actually recently talked about on Fewercast, um, Ex Machina. Um, that one, fantastic film, Oscar Isaac, uh, Dom Hall Gleason, um, both fantastic in that. Great idea, conceptually. Uh, my other one is one of your honorable mentions, Saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to bring that one up. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just great, great movie. We saw that in theaters, I remember. Yep. Uh, the ending blew me away. It like blew my mind the first time I saw it. I did not see that ending yeah, coming. Me too. Me too. And in, in fact, the first couple Saul's did that had that effect. In fact, Saul too, I fucking gave it a standing ovation and fucking clapped. I was blown away. I was like, ah, you brought it back to the bathroom, you sly bastards. I like it. <laughs> and then my last one is actually a more recent one. Uh The Lighthouse. Robert Pattinson, William Dafoe. Oh, yeah, for sure. Just awesome movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just beautiful, just kind of out there. Oh, I love the Lighthouse, very dude. That's good stuff. Yeah. It just stuck in my mind. Like, I, that's one that stuck with me, and I've rewatched several times. Um, but anyway, moving on, my number five. I had to put it on here. It's one of my um, favorite all-time classics, uh, 12 Angry Men. Um, I own the Criterion Blu-ray. I've seen it um, several times. I'm talking about the original, not right. the um, I figured. later remake. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just a, a great movie. Like you would think it'd be boring just having 12 dudes um, stuck in a room together the whole time, but it holds my interest. And I just love the logic going through the whole time and how somebody just raising questions can, you know, kind of poke holes through everything. And Henry Fonda, I mean, owns that movie. Like, he is just fantastic in that movie. So, yeah, 12 Angry Men, number five. You know what? I just randomly thought of a film that I don't even know why I had left off my list, so I'm going to put it as an honorable mention and also, you know, just acknowledge it, and that is Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Fucking love that movie. I really, really do. <laughs> um, 
I think if I would have yeah. thought this list through a little bit better, that would have actually snuck one to here. But as for now, at least I got to mention it. Um, so yeah, it's funny you mentioned Lighthouse. That's my number four, The Lighthouse Man. Robert Edgers, uh, Pattinson, of course, Defoe, and a mermaid. <laughs> it's just a fucking and it's 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 bizarre, but it's cinematically genius if that makes sense. It's uh. A film that I recommend if you if you want something different, uh, pff, check out the lighthouse. It's all that in a bag of muffins. <laughs> a bag of muffins. That's right. <laughs> Some people prefer potatoes. I prefer muffins. All right, Core. What's your number four? Hey, that rhymed. My number. F- <laughs> My number four uh, might actually be a surprising one because I don't talk about it a whole lot. Uh, but I wish I did. Uh, my number four is my dinner with Andre. Um, it's just one that I saw when I was younger and it's just always stuck with me. Uh, so Wallace, Sean, Andre Gregory sitting down at dinner, old friends, just catching up. And it's just, the movie's just like electric, like just them talking, like you can totally tell, like they're just two old friends right. catching up, realizing, uh, you know, they're not as similar as they used to be. Right. Just awesome film. Just, I've seen it so many times, especially when I was younger. Um, my uncle actually had it on, um, VHS. I remember, and I would always borrow it <laughs> and watch it. So my dinner with Andre, my number four. Wow. Why have I never heard of this movie? I'm intrigued. I have to look it up. Yeah, it's not well known. It's like an early '80s movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously Wallace Shawn. I mean, he's fairly well known character actor, but and then uh, Eric Andre. But it's just this little movie. I mean, Andre Gerger. I'm sorry. It's just a little movie. It, it's not super well known. I probably wouldn't know about it otherwise. From my uncle, that's probably it. Gotcha. All right, then. Um, number three is Rear Window. Gotta love Rear Window, Hitchcock's fucking classic film. Uh, I'm even a fan of Disturbia, the film that this is kind of yeah. the roughly remake off of. But yeah, it's it's just uh, you know, uh, it's just it's classic Hitchcock. Um, if Psycho wasn't a film, it wouldn't be my favorite. But unfortunately, you know, he went and did Psycho, and I'm a big Psycho fan, so. Yeah, that's that's all. Just short and sweet. Rear, rear window. So, what's your uh, three? My number three. Uh, I, it was a toss up between two movies actually by the same director, but I ended up picking this one just because another one of his movies was on my list on the last episode. So my number three is Reservoir Dogs. Uh, Quentin Tarantino, yes. obviously Harvey Keitel, right. Tim Roth. Um, Previous episode. If you ask. Yeah, if you ask me honestly, I might put Hateful Eight above this, but since I just put Hateful Eight on my list last week for Westerns, I, I put this one on. I mean, they're pretty close. Like, they're both right. um, excellent movies. I mean, Reservoir Dogs, like, an all-time classic. Like, you know, Quentin Tarantino just burst onto the scene with this movie. Harvey Keitel fucking owns that movie. Love me some uh, Keitel, so... Yeah, how can you go wrong? Yeah, man, between Reservoir Dogs and uh, Bad Lieutenant, uh, 92. Hot year for Kytel, I'm tell you. Uh, all right, so my number two is Alien. 
Ridley Scott's classic. It's a fucking masterpiece. Who am I kidding? I just rewatched it last week. Fucking movie will always hold up. Uh, I can go on and on. We haven't covered it. Definitely going to be covering it, obviously. But uh, can't wait to cover it. So, yeah. Alien, Ridley Scott, Scorny Weaver. You know the deal. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I honestly, I didn't even think to put that on my list. That, pr- that probably would have made at least an honorable mention for me. I didn't even think about that. That's the problem. Like, there's so many movies there that are. could kind of qualify for this. There it's are. actually a pretty wide category. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, my number two, um, John Carpenter classic, The Thing. Ah, uh, yes. I uh, had to put it on there. Just trapped in the Antarctic. Um, okay. So uh, base. I was going to put the thing on my list. I actually had, it was one of the first films I thought about when I was doing my list. But I kind of disqualified it for the fact that they have that whole sequence where they leave and they go to the other base and all. And I'm like, well, it's not the same setting, but I don't know. I guess I'm just kind of being anal. And I could have put that on there because it's like, I don't know, 80% of the movie takes place on that base. So it's probably more than that. So yeah, you know I mean? the thing's fine. I mean, in Alien, they. Aliens, yeah, like I a, mean, you could say that with a lot of the movies. But aliens, like one a ship, the Nostra. Oh, they go to the planet too, though. Fuck. But the core. They go to the planet in the beginning. But the movie yeah. takes place on you know the the, the Nostromo. Uh, but anyway, real quick about the thing. Um, yeah. Just one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, to me, John Carpenter's finest work. Um, you know, it, it's just one of those movies I've probably seen the most out of any movie so and to me the reason it fits even though it did have a, a scene or two not in the base just the claustrophobia and being stuck there i think it fits kind of perfectly even though they do leave a couple of times but they're kind of stuck there one setting so that's why i wanted to put it on so my number two the thing all right so that leads us to number one now uh you mentioned it i fucking love it it's a previous episode in my favorite Tarantino film, The Hateful Eight. Uh, I, that movie's just, oh man, I can get passed away and watch that movie. And it's just all dialogue for the most part. And I don't give a shit. It's Tarantino, like, on, in, in, in tip top form. And, uh, yeah. He just wrote this shit out of that screenplay, and everyone played their part to a T. Everything comes together so well. I, you know, had the the chance to I go. love Walton Goggins. Yeah, Walton Goggins, <laughs> goddamn. Him and him and Tim Roth with the accents, dude. And uh, you know, I was able to go see it uh for the the, the road show. Uh yeah, we saw it. You were there too, that's right. And I got the program, I'm looking at the program right now, actually. So I got to see it all the the overture and the intermission and all that stuff. So got the full experience. I actually went and saw it twice in that. Uh, with my uncle and cousin one night, and then we all went. But anyway, uh, yeah, Hateful Eight, number one. What's yours? So my number one had to be my number one because it's the first thing that popped in my head. Wow, uh, who put your number an action one? Movie. Huh? I would who put your number one? If it's your number one, if it's number one, it's your number one. <laughs> yeah, but it's just like immediately... What popped into my head? It's uh, you know, one of the greatest action movies ever done. Every man stuck in a single location, fighting terrorists. All right, of course, McClane. it has to be under. No, it's under siege, actually. Oh, okay. Nah, it's just fucking. <laughs> <with you>. Nah, <laughs> he's a chef. 
Uh, a chef yeah. on a ship. I, I love Chef Seagal. Chef Seagal. Um, but no, Die Hard. It has to be Die Hard. Like that, to me, that's uh, it takes the concept and Come does it the, the best. Coast. Like just stuck Get in the together, building. have a few laughs. Yeah, just it, it nails everything. The characters, the comedy, uh, Bruce Willis, uh, so likable. Every man, you know, we talked about it before, but um, McTiernan definitely um, directed the shit and brought a lot of uh, humor, which I really appreciate. And obviously Hans Gruber, one of my favorite all-time villains of yeah. any former medium. So Die Hard number one. What the hell is his, his name when he finds him and he disguises himself as someone else, like Clay or something? What the hell does he say his name is? Yeah, it, it's Clay, but I don't remember. Yeah, because it's on like, I Bill think Clay. it's like Andrew Clay or Bill something. Clay. Or Bill Clay. I, kn- Bill I know Clay. it was like a generic type name, yeah. Yeah, Bill Clay. Bill Clay, yep. Oh, uh, yeah, good stuff. All right, well, so uh, let's talk about Panic Room, shall we? So like we talked about earlier, got that state-of-the-art 3D opening credit sequence from the, <laughs> the New York skyline and uh, all, the, all the letterings like kind of like blend into the buildings. I mean, I thought it was really cool 20 years ago, watching it this morning. <laughs> it's, it's whatever. It stands out. It, it's, it's something that I've seen done to death over and over. Um. Yeah. Obvious. Three D. The three D is like not the best. Think, no. Do you think Fincher's like? I got so many ideas for this movie. Number one, three D opening sequence. <laughs> It'll blow everybody away. It's gonna be fucking mind blowing. <laughs> like, we'll uh, we'll spend four million dollars on it. Million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> cost a third of our budget. Jesus. It's like oh well. We'll just film it all in one room now. <laughs> it's good. So, yeah, these opening credits, they were created by a collaboration between uh, title design company, the Picture Mill, and special effects company, Computer Cafe. It took them one year to complete. This fucking sequence took one year to do. Uh, Darius Kanji quit the production after several weeks as a cinematographer, and he was replaced by... Conrad W. Hall, uh, although Fincher later admitted that he micromanaged Condi and didn't allow him to fully take part in the decision-making process, and he's actually still credited um, as a co-DP in the opening credits. Um, let's see, what else? Did you notice the World Trade Center? The t- the uh, the towers? You can still see no, them. No, I didn't notice anything. Even though this was post-9-11, they're still in there. They can... Uh, you can see them if uh, you look close enough. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I'm sorry. I actually got the $4 million figure off of something else. The That was how much Columbia paid David uh, Kep to write this. $4 million to write a fucking screenplay. And you said $8 million for the credits? So that's $12 million right there. <laughs> I mean, we'll get the box office budget later on and all that shit, but uh, that's just crazy to think about how just the opening two minutes and the writer alone 
costs what I can only imagine is probably like a quarter of the budget, you know? Yeah. So, uh, let's see. A couple more things before we get into the meat of things. Uh, it was shot over a 120-day period. It was actually the longest shoot for Jodie Foster in her career. She was pregnant with her second child during filming, and because of this, reshoots had to be made in the fall of 2001 after she gave birth, as principal photography took longer than planned. Uh, now, well, I'll get into it later on. There's a part for that to be discussed, but Judy Foster was not the original choice. Uh, Nicole Kidman was, in fact, the original choice to uh, play Meg, and... Uh, the film was actually in production when she had left and then they got Foster to replace her and they had been shooting for 18 days by the time they brought Jody in to, uh, you know, film. Hmm. So, all Why right. did uh, Kidman leave? I'll get to it. We'll, uh, okay. we kick off with Megan Sarah. Now this is Kristen Stewart, who's 11. at In this movie, she's 11. She looks like she's like 12 in real life, um, which is crazy to think about because she's just fucking 30-something full-blown adult now. And, you know, Meg, Jodie Foster, uh, they're with their fucking pushy New Yorker of a real estate agent, and uh, they get a tour of this house they're going to, this uh, beautiful, beautiful, uh, what's it called? The Brownstone. Fucking beautiful Brownstone. And uh, they go inside, get the tour. Place even has a fucking elevator that we see when... uh. Kristen Stewart goes up with it. Uh, you know, it, it's just funny watching this movie now because I didn't think about it when I was younger, but like now I'm like, oh my God, that house is huge. I was like the property value. I mean, we're talking like tens of millions of dollars because they're in New oh, York. Yeah. It's just funny. Like how I like now I think about that, like home values. Uh, but before I was, you know, I didn't, it didn't even enter my mind when I saw this and I was like, whatever I was 16 or whatever, 17. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, all the indoor scenes in this film were shot in sequence, and they, uh, in sequence as to how they appear in the movie, obviously. Um, so let's talk about this brownstone real quick, this place. It's, it's beautiful, like I said. Three stories, well, four technically if you count the basement. Um, you know, we'll get to the panic room, obviously, but putting that aside, um, it's just got that nice, rich New York feel to it. You know what I mean? Not that I know how New York yeah. feels personally, because I've only been there a handful of times. I'm a, I'm a Baltimore guy. <laughs> Obviously, we're both from Baltimore. So, um, but, you know, I've seen enough movies, documentaries, been to the place a couple times myself throughout my years, you know, to know kind of what a New York feel feels like. That's what this looks like. No, this, it, this place has it, got that New York look and feel. It does. It does. Cause like when I'm watching certain films, like I'm like, Oh yeah, that's like, they're supposed to be in New York. I'm like, this is Canada or wherever, you know, like there's times where I'm like, yeah, there's no way this is New York, but yeah, there's just the way the architecture is and, um, a house and obviously the exterior stuff. Yeah. It all, it all fits pretty well. Definitely feels like New York. Yeah. No question. Uh, it's a real house. And, uh, it's at 38th West, 94th Street, New York. Um, 
Now they only use the house for exterior shots. Obviously, everything inside was built on a studio and a stage. The uh, house is actually still there. Fans visit to check it out. It's not currently on the market, but it was estimated to cost $7.2 million. Um, Fincher stated that he wanted the film to look and feel as realistic as possible. So this led to increase in the film's budget and longer than planned filming schedule. The apartment was built in whole and the panic room was built and modeled after a real life panic room. The real life set and etching lead to several minor injuries to I'm sorry. The real life set and action led to several minor injuries to actors during filming as Fincher insisted on doing several scenes without the use of CGI. So that that's kind of like uh I don't know. It's uh it's what I'm looking for. I see why he wanted to do it, just kind of get get away from that CG, but now the way CG looks, I mean, I guess I'm talking out of my ass now, because 2002 was different, that was 20 years ago. The CG, now you can get away with it, you know, why risk someone's health or well-being when you can just CG something and it can look as real as possible, whereas 2002, well, do we have to talk about them credits again? Yeah. <laughs> so, um... Bad the movie that they're all shown in the panic room. They they see the panic room because uh, Meg notices that the it, something's not is uh, is off because you have this the stairs, the wall where it ends. She's like is something off about this space. And the realtor or uh, the guy who's showing the uh, uh, place tells him, you know, you're the first person to notice, and that's where the panic room is. And, uh, yeah, the, 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 the house's previous owner, a reclusive millionaire, installed it to protect his family from intruders. The room is reinforced by concrete and steel on all sides and a thick steel door. There's also an extensive security system with multiple surveillance cameras, with multiple surveillance cameras and a direct phone line to the police that's separate and can't be cut. Bullshit. Third floor, spare bedroom, den, what have you. Mr. Perlstein used this as an office. He's talking about Sidney Perlstein, the financier. May I ask what you do, Mrs. Altman? Well, actually, I'm going back to school, Columbia. Her husband's in pharmaceuticals. Oh. I didn't realize you were Stephen Altman's wife. Yes, until recently. Master Bath. Perlstein's been in all the papers since he died. His kids are suing each other over the estate. He was a recluse, rich, paranoid. Now it turns out they can't find out his money. I hardly see how family gossip is germane to showing the property. Stop calling it the property. It sounds ridiculous. Walk-in closet. Could the little one please stop that? Kid, no elevator! And we emerge in the master's suite. Strange. What? Is this room smaller than it should be? You're the first person to notice. On Caravan, no one from our office had the slightest idea. 
What? A safe room. A castle keep in medieval time. I've read about these. They're quite in vogue in high-end construction right now. One really can't be too careful about home invasion. This is perfect. The alarm goes off in the middle of the night. What are you going to do? Call the police and wait till Tuesday? Traipse downstairs in your underthings to check it out? I think not. Board concrete walls? Buried phone line not connected to the house's main line. You can call the police, nobody can cut you off. You have your own ventilation system. A bank of surveillance monitors that covers nearly every corner of the house. This whole thing makes me nervous. Why? Ever read any Poe? No, but I loved her last album. What's to keep somebody from prying open the door? Steel. Thick steel. Very thick steel. Full battery backup. So even if the power's off, it's still functional. Oh, oh my God. Old Sidney didn't miss a trick, did he? Open it, please. And the kid's like, he's apparently got no wonder he wanted a place to hide. Please open the door. That is highly inappropriate. Open the door, please. My room. Meg's nervous. And uh, she asked the agent if she's ever read Poe. And as a Baltimorean, I understood that. Come on. Edgar Allan Poe. This is a telltale heart that she's referencing for those of you who are uh, in the dark. And she says, no, but I loved her last album. Waka waka. Um, (laughs) So then we see the Mayflower truck take off after delivering the final load as Megan Steph. I'm sorry. As Megan Sarah. I don't know why I call her Steph. So uh, they spend their first night together in the new Upper West Side Bookstone. See, I see that Mayflower and I get flashbacks. I'm like, ah, Mayflowers are like the plague here in Baltimore, especially if you're a Colts fan. <laughs> the old Mayflower <laughs> packing up and leaving overnight back in January of 80, 84. Look it up, people. Uh, That shit really happened here in Baltimore. So, it took Arthur Max and his production design team 15 weeks to construct the four-story brownstone set. Guess how much it cost? Uh, to build the set? Oh, God. I don't know. A couple million? Six. Six? Okay. Six That's million dollars. Jesus. So, writer David Cup got the idea for the film from an article in the New York Times about safe rooms and getting stuck inside an elevator in his own brownstone. I can just see him like kind of like, because they kind of like remind me of dumbwaiters, even though they're actually full-fledged elevators or just smaller than the normal size. Just imagine like being all bunched up inside and getting stuck like, hello, someone get me out of here, I'm stuck in my own elevator, get me the fuck out. (laughs) So it's a rainy night. Meg tucks Sarah into bed and then unpacks with a bottle of wine or a Chardonnay, as the bottle reads. And we see her make her bed and then it cuts to her in the she's have she's in the bathtub, just drinking away her, her problems, her sadness, and uh she's had herself a good cry. So now right before this we see that she's got the panic room door left open with a blanket that's blocking the, the, the laser so it stays open. Um and then before bed, she sets the alarms and turns on the the uh, equipment and then passes out. So Fincher then treats us to this camera trick that takes us downstairs to the front window where a, call pull, a car pulls up and things begin. So at first we see Burnham, who's uh, Forrest Whitaker, an employee of the home security company. And he gets inside and searches the place. Uh, 
so I have a note here about the film itself. It was filmed, it was shot on Super 35 format, primarily with a three-perf negative pull-down. And then during production, one of the high-speed cameras turned on the crew, and the, and, uh, the decision was made to switch to four-perf Super 35 for high-speed shots only. And now, I'll bring that up, because like I said, we just got this cool shot before Burnham comes in. And it's kind of like a shot that you see from... It basically does it from in Fight Club a bunch. It's kind of like the 3D shot that gets like really in the detail and then small spaces because it kind of like goes yeah. under the rail and then down. It's like no way you can pull this off practically. So even for it being 20 years old, it looks pretty fucking good, this shot. I, no, I, I it do does. Like it. it holds up. Yeah, it, it really stood out just like the... I mean, the whole movie's slick with the camera work, but especially this sequence. I mean, the fact that it still looks good mm-hmm. that good 20 years later and just how fluid it is and just of what's going on, it just makes what would probably be just like a standard or boring scene just feel more exciting and feel more interesting. You know, it's just Fincher elevating it pretty much. Right. Uh, so, yeah, Burnham. First of all, Forrest Whitaker, hell of an actor in this movie. I think he was a perfect actor for this role because um, Borna was kind of like the thief because, you know, we're about to find out there's three thieves total. And Borna was the one with the heart. He's kind of like a big, t- like a big, angry or pissed off like teddy bear. Like, you know, he's got like this hard yeah. gold. Um, so, yeah, he, yeah he, he seems smart. And like he see you know, Whitaker in this, he's like he's very this smart. character Burnham. He's like smart, but you can just tell he's like downtrodden. Like his life hasn't worked out super well, even though he's no. like a smart guy. He's smart, he's down on his luck, but he's made bad choices, and that's all right. You know, we yeah. all have made bad choices before. Now he's about to do something, like you mentioned. He does some smart stuff, like right here. He notices that there's a nightlight in the kitchen, I'm sorry, in the upstairs bathroom and realizes then that the place isn't empty. So he sees Sarah sleeping and then we get the poster shot of Foster laying down with the blurry figure standing behind her and the, uh, and Vernon goes downstairs and he lets Junior and Raul inside. Now this is, uh, Jared Leto and Dwight Yoakam and Junior... (laughs) Jared Leto, he's the previous owner's grandson. They intend to steal bear bonds locked inside of a floor safe inside the panic room by the previous owners, as Junior doesn't want to share them with the extended family when his grandfather's estate is settled in probate. So Burnham's pissed because the place was supposed to be empty due to escrow, and then he goes to just pack up and leave like he should have done to begin with here, before Junior reminds him what he's there for. But Actually, it doesn't say why. Which leads to Burnham saying to kill the phone lines. So, Burnham didn't even know about Raul. So, that alone should have been a fucking red flag. Like, dude should have bailed when he had the chance right here. But, he needs yeah. the money, I guess. Oh, Christ! Amateur. We got probably talk. Who's that? This is Raul. Who the fuck is Raul? Raul is okay. Raul has experience. Where'd you get him? Through some people. They open the fucking door. 
floor, there's a woman on the third step over sleep. They're not supposed to be here. This is your department, Julia. They, they are not supposed to be here. Videotape. What? We're on videotape. We've been on videotapes, so we got within 10 feet of this place. And the tapes are upstairs. 14 days, girl. Fuck to me, man. 14 days, girl, man. That's almost three weeks. They should not be in here for another week. How? Exactly how is 14 days, three weeks? Business day. Escrow is always business days, five day weeks, always. Right. Out of here. Wait, look, what? Just, just wait, 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 wait a minute. We can handle this. We can handle this. Now, can we still handle this? It's just a woman and a kid. Unless daddy comes home. Daddy's not coming home. They're in the middle of a divorce. Daddy's banging some fucking B model on the upper side, all right? It's just her. Can we do this? Yeah, we very vague about details. In fact, we never really find out what happened with Burnham. We just know he's down in his, uh, you know, down, down, down the dirts. <laughs> um, yeah, then we hear a toilet flush. Or they hear, rather, the toilet flush upstairs. And half asleep, May goes to turn the security stuff off in the panic room. But she see, then she sees the three men on the surveillance screen. Junior, being Junior, accidentally knocks over a basketball and begins slowly going up the stairs. So Meg runs for Sarah as Junior and Raul run after them. And then they, they take the elevator down to the bottom level, featuring this really cool split shot with uh, Junior struggling to get after them inside while they're going down. And then as they're going back up, he's still, you know, he's, he's still fighting to get after them. So they go up to the top floor and then successfully get into the panic room. So personally, my adrenaline was kind of rushing here because, like, watching all this go down, like, minus the elevator shit, like, knowing that, like, you know, any f- one false move, you're fucked. But, you know, she just got to make decisions in this situation. And her daughter is just kind of, like, not even familiar with anything going on because she's sleeping and then just you imagine just being waking up like in a deep sleep to someone like pulling you and be like come on we gotta go we gotta get into this room otherwise we're gonna die or whatever or something <laughs> you know it's yeah i'd be out of it would you like if, if i was foster i'd be fucked like i wouldn't have made it to the panic room i'd be like uh just you guys finish up and leave i'm sleeping here <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, she makes a lot of smart decisions in this movie. Like, they really... I, I, I Hats off to David Kep for not, like, downplaying or, or, or dumbing her down. You know what I mean? Does that make yeah. sense? No. No, it does, because, like, she made the best decision she could. Like, she right. wasn't getting out of there, so the next best decision is getting in that room. Right. Um... And speaking of like minor, you know, attentions to de- details and stuff like that, and, and and not like, like I was talking about uh, Forrest Whitaker's character and and his his persona and you know what he did to get him into the situation that he's in, that they don't dis- they don't they don't tell us. And something else too about this movie that they keep vague is Jodie Foster's divorce. You know, you know, there's this guy Stephen. And then they call, and there's this other woman who answers, but we don't quite know straight up, flat out, what happened. We can, um, you know, we we can imagine, yeah. we can we, you, we can just assume that it was just 
A cheated on B, ended up with C, you know, whatever. But, you know, it's, again, that stuff's not important. This, the idea of this movie is to just keep it, keep it contaminated, keep it simple. You know, one setting, one simple plot, just in and out, wham, bam, thinking, man, we don't have to, like, confuse the viewer with, like, these deep pasts for these characters and stuff like that, like... You, you know just enough that you need to know about these people throughout the movie, you know? Does that make sense? I know that was a mouthful, but I'm trying to prove yeah. the point, I mean. Yeah, you, you get enough, so you get the idea of the character, and you can either dislike or like the character, you know, right. so you're invested, but not so much that it bogs down the movie, the runtime and the flow of the movie. Because, I mean, you know... It, it's it's left gray, but it's fairly obvious to me. Jodie Foster's character Meg, she was probably cheated on. Like her husband probably cheated on her. Right. She found out. Now they're getting a divorce. She doesn't really want a divorce. You know, she's in, in a bad situation. Even though some people might look at her and say, "Well, her husband's rich. What's she complaining about? She's rich." Right. You know, gets alimony and child support, alimony but child like support, she probably exactly. just wanted. Yeah, she probably still just wanted to be with her husband. So uh, uh, not all this is spelled out, but just the way the movie progresses and the way Foster is in the movie. That's just the impression I got. But it it's good to just give you just enough so you care. And it's not just completely, you know, just zooming by, but also not too much. That it's like, oh, man, I don't I don't need all this backstory, you know, for this type of movie. Right, it's just right. enough. Yep. So yeah, it's revealed then once inside that Meg never had the emergency phone line hooked up. So shouldn't that have been done when you were uh, signing the paperwork? Like that is the whole point of having that system in there. So have it hooked up, but no. Night number one, you'll learn your lesson. Oh yes, really quickly you will. So Burnham, <laughs> uh, Burnham checks the fucking records of the phone company and saw that it was never installed and mentions that it's not like it's something you can just call and have done overnight. So they're safe in that department. So then they hear Meg warning them over the PA that the cops are on the way, but they call her bluff. Burnham then gets a pen and paper as Junior writes, what we want is in that room. And then she then asks what they know about the room and he responds with, more than you. She warns them again to get the fuck out. And she says, get out. And then there's this like funny banner between her and her daughter. Like, you should use fuck. And she's like, fuck. Motherfucker. Get the fuck out, motherfucker. <laughs> she's like, mom, say fuck. Yeah, yeah that's pretty funny. Get the fuck out of my house. Because yeah, like um, she's the mom. Like, she doesn't curse. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the daughter has to remind her. And then Junior writes, we will let you go. And she says, the conversation's over. So Junior and Burnham continue to go back and forth like brothers until Burnham laughs and Raul asks what's so funny. And he points out the irony in this uh, since he designed to keep the place safe and now he's breaking in. He says that he can't get into the panic room because that's the point. They've got to get it to her. They've got to get her to come out. Um, and they've got and they're not leaving because eventually she's got to get out of there, you know. So he goes to work on a plan as the scene ends. So yeah, they're just basically just going to stand around and just be like, eventually you guys got to come out of there. And until you do, we'll be waiting. That's basically the gist of this shit we're going on right now. Um, yeah, let's see where we at here. Megan and Sarah talking about the situation inside the panic room. 
Meg struggling to keep herself together. Uh, Sarah's the calm one in the situation. And Sarah checks the cameras but doesn't know what they're doing. So, let's talk casting. So, Cole Kidman, briefly mentioned her, supposed to be the Jodie Foster role. Now, Kristen Stewart was also a last-minute replacement. Originally, that was Hayden Panettiere. Hayden, yeah, Hayden Panettiere was supposed to be in that role. Thank Christ. Thank Christ Kristen Stewart was cast in there. Oh, my God. I'd probably hate this movie with that fucking bitch. Oh, I hate her. Why? I ask why? Not a- I don't know. It's nothing personal. I'm sure she's a it's, fine it's, person. It's, it sounds always- personal. <laughs> I don't know. I just I never liked her. I, it, anything. Like, honestly, do you remember the show Heroes? I know you don't watch a lot of TV, but she was on that show Heroes. That- the only reason the I day. remember Heroes, and it's only the first season I remember, because when that show premiered back in like 2006, um, VH1 had that show Best Week Ever every Friday night. And every week they would always highlight, you know, the previous week's episode from Heroes. So I saw a lot of like clips from that show. I know she was on there. Allie Lauder was on there. A bunch of other people. Yeah. It was a bunch of people, and the first season of that show was excellent. Honestly, probably one of the best seasons of any show I've ever seen. Like, the first season's awesome, then it all goes to hell. But anyway, I just could not stand her on that show. It it was just her cadence, just the way she was. I just could not stand her at all on that show for whatever reason. I was rooting for the bad guy, Siler, to cut her head open and take her powers. I really was. I just did not like her. So I think this movie would definitely go down a notch if she was the daughter in this. Alright. So yeah. Cole, Nicole Kidman cast in the role as Meg Altman. Hayden Panettiere was cast as the daughter of Sarah before the family began. Hayden Panettiere was replaced with Kristen Stewart who had beat out uh, V Chase for the role as director David Fincher found her irritating. <laughs> So she got fired because Fincher didn't like her. So he found her irritating, said, fuck this, don't need this noise, candor. Then 18 days into the filming, Kevin had to leave the film due to a reoccurring knee injury suffered during uh, the filming of Moulin Rouge. So Fincher suggested that the studio close the production and collect the insurance, but the studio moved forward. Jodie Foster was offered the role. Due to having been the president of the Cannes Film Festival jury, she withdrew to work with Fincher. Uh, with whom she originally was supposed to work with on the game in the role now played by Sean Penn. Interesting. Foster had only nine days to prepare for the Meg Altman role. Kidman left a small mark in the film. Nevertheless, she's obviously the voice of the girlfriend later on in the movie on the phone. And uh, yeah, man. Then the uh, the sets had to be designed with Kidman in mind originally. Since she's no longer in it, Jodie Foster came in, and she's a lot smaller than uh, that's uh, than Nicole Kidman. This is why when every, every time you see Jodie Foster go through in and out of the panic room, the green laser it like it's directly in her eye. That's why. 
Apparently that was really blinding her a bunch, like during filming, like that was, huh. yeah, it, it was constantly blinding her as she, every time she was coming in and out, like because you can see it in the movie, clear as day. That green laser, the the uh, security laser, is like directly on her eyeball as she walks in. It's like perfectly leveled with her eyes. It's crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, i i didn't I didn't even think about that, but I will say nothing against Nicole Kidman. I think she's a fine actress. Like I think she would have been fine and good in the movie, but I think Jodie Foster fits a little better. Nicole Kidman's too pretty, I think for this role. And I don't mean to say that in a bad way, but I think it makes Jodie Foster like Jodie Foster's just looks more like a normal person, I guess I would say. And it makes it just a little bit more relatable since you're not learning a ton of their backstory. Right. Uh, you know, maybe I'm way off base here, no, but yeah. that's just the way I feel. like Nicole Kidman looks like a supermodel, you know? Yeah, Nicole Kidman. So let me see what we got here. Burnham brings in his bag full of tools, his power tools, sorry, and toys so they can go get to work. He seals all the doors with screws, and Junior pushes furniture to block the door. Then they all close the curtains so no one can see inside. So back in the room, Sarah's now starting to show signs of panic as she is seen frantically going through one of the emergency cases before they hear her banging coming from below. And that is Junior, who thinks he's going to, uh, you know, sledgeham his way into the fucking panic room from down below. Like, pop, I him, like, yeah, pop in. Like, hey guys, you got room for one more? But, uh... Yeah, Junior and Raul, not the brightest. In this movie. I mean, Burnham even tells him how idiotic it is because there's three there's three feet of steel that he's never going to get through. So he says that if he designed it so that, that they can always get in from underneath, then he wouldn't have a job. Um. Yeah, Megan, Sarah, then are calling out. They start calling out for their neighbors through the walls, just saying "fuck it," just blast that desperation banging, beating on the walls, yelling at the top of your lungs, but uh, not realizing just how thick these walls are. And trust me, they are no one going to hear them from there. And my note here from Finch is that um, he, he agreed that the film's production was an, an, an artist one, Remarking it, it was a logistical nightmare. The lighting issue during the filming process was particularly difficult due to the compl- complexity of the security cameras used in the mansion that sent surveillance images to the television in the panic room. Um, so yeah, this is when Burnham just fucking says, fuck it, goes and gets a goddamn propane tank and a hose and some electric tape. And he, yeah, he's good. Brilliant idea. I wouldn't even have thought of something like that until I saw this movie. I mean, just a great idea. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. She's going to flush him out your own way. So he busts down the drywall. That's outside the panic room. And he starts drilling while Meg and Sarah listen from the inside. And they start to worry that they're going to get to him. At what point do they start referring to mind games to get them to try to, you know, come out? Yeah, I mean, do it right away or something. They gotta get. Yeah, I mean, they gotta get creative. Like, <laughs> they want that money, and uh, you know, like Burnham Fars Whitaker's character said it earlier. Like, we're not getting in, so we gotta get them out. So you know, we gotta 
use whatever kind of games or whatever we can do to get them out essentially. So, I mean, I think it's a pretty logical step for them to take. Yeah. Well, talking about this scene in general here, the propane tank brought in from the outside barbecue grill is a 20 pound liquid propane gas canister. Propane gas is compressed in the, in the cylinder until it forms a liquid. The valve assembly, which we see the knob turned to open one valve, on the canister has a sp- uh, second spring-loaded valve, which requires a special hose fitted for the gas to flow. The garden hose would not have the correct fitting. Also, propane is heavier than air and would fall, not rise. When ignited, propane gas would not be burning up you know this at ceiling level it would explode with enough force to blow out the the uh, ductwork and severely injure the person in the room if not kill them outright from the explosion not to mention the 3500 degree fahrenheit burning gas so uh yeah implausible <laughs> so that's like some fucking mythbuster shit right there <laughs> just shot that shit down right um yeah but it's plausible enough. Like, enough, you know, right. it, if you get into detail, a lot of stuff uh, in a lot of movies wouldn't make any sense if you really break down science. But it's plausible enough. Like, OK, they got a gas can. They're putting it in the vent. You know, it's plausible enough. Like, I wasn't sitting there like, oh, yeah, bullshit. That would never happen. You know. Let's see. Here. Yeah. So they start pumping propane gas into the panic room through the ventilation system. Burnham's scared that they're going to pass out or even die. And this is the scene when Meg tries to tape the vents with duct tape. I feel like that's going to fucking work. But then covers up with Meg under a blanket, a fire blanket, and uses the candle lighter to reach up and ignite something. So it hits the gas, and the blue flames backfire on them, I guess. Not sure exactly what she's thinking in this scene, to be, exact, to be honest. Uh, Junior now looking like he wants to be Harvey Dent after this shit happens. Uh, he's just <laughs> flipping the fuck out. I, I noticed this scene ends with the fade to black and like everything. Everything about this scene is just insane. It, it's just one of the craziest scenes in the movie. What were you going to say? Yeah. No, I was just going to say it was funny. I, I really like the part when she's trying to do the igniter and you hear the clicking. Yeah. You're like, what is and that? Junior's like, what is that? And then you just see. Horse Whitaker, he's just like, I know what that is. I'm backing the fuck yep. up. Like you just see him backing up, and then Raul sees him and starts backing up. Dwight Yoakam, uh, I just love that part. And then obviously you can tell Junior, like he's very vain, like he really cares about the way he looks. So obviously it's a big deal that now he's, uh, you know, basically two face. <laughs> I mean, yeah, why not? Uh, and you, oh, and go on. No, sorry. I just wanted to bring this up while we're here. Do you remember they parodied they parodied the scene? I think at the MTV Movie Awards or something like that. Do you remember that at all? I I still remember bits and pieces of that. Hmm. No. I'm pretty sure it was like Jack Black. He was like the junior character in the parody, and instead of uh, propane, he was like farting into the. Um, hose and it was going up and you know they have like the jody foster stuff where she's like oh it smelled like it it was just so stupid (laughs) but it it was just one of those it just always stuck out to be like uh when they parried like spider-man and the 
Jack Black was parried in that and he was all fat Spider-Man. Like, I don't know. It was just one of those. I used to enjoy those like little stupid things they did at the MTV Movie Awards. But this was definitely one of them where he was like farting into the hose. Right, and, right. Um, wall. So I don't know. I just always remember that about this movie. The MTV did the parody thing. Yeah, I, I kind of remember that myself. Um, you know, looking back on this, watching it again this morning, the, the one thing that stands out about this scene here that I'll always remember is like Leto's intensity. He's like, you fucking bitch, I'm coming in there! Like the aggression of this man is in this scene. He's so fucking intense. Um so yeah, the the Burnham, like I mentioned before, like he's like this nice guy underneath this persona, and I think that they nailed the casting with Forrest Whitaker because what better actor to play the part than the guy who always looks like this the the character act the, the character Jefferson from Fast Times, but deep down has such a big heart. As far as Whitaker, man, don't piss him off. His evil eye will come get you, um, or his lazy eye will come get you. Sarah takes a flashlight and starts flashing out an SOS to this small pipe, this pipe that conveniently comes into play now. Uh, that's very very tiny. It just barely fits this flashlight. They're flashing out the SOS to a sleeping neighbor yeah, at his window. She says it's something that she learned from the James Cameron blockbuster film Titanic. Uh, <laughs> so the screenwriter of Seven, previous episode, previous David Fincher film, uh, Andrew Kevin Walker, he's the guy who plays the sleeping neighbor that they're trying to get the, the, the attention from who just ends up saying, fuck this, you know, a couple crazy people just flashing lights on my face while I'm trying to sleep. I'm gonna shut this curtain here and be done with it, so. And yeah. that's what my man does. I would do does. the same thing. Yeah, I would do the same thing. I wouldn't assume it's somebody, like, doing SOS in a fucking, uh, you know, townhome, you know? <laughs> you just don't expect that, necessarily. Well, who knows Morse code anymore, anyway? Yeah. No, I would just assume it's like some punk kids or something like that, honestly. Right. Um, See, so yeah, Raul pulls Junior downstairs, and he now wants a third of the money for dealing with all this bullshit. Something that he reluctantly agrees to, reluctantly, uh, yeah, reluctantly agrees to before being warned by Raul to control Burnham because he's not going to risk his, his half. Now, when he says his half, Junior immediately fucking calls him out. And he's like, what? Now, first it was a third. Now, ten seconds later, it's a half. Like, he keeps on changing up the fucking total and shit. So, meanwhile, the two get the sleeping neighbor to wake up finally. And, yeah, like I said before, it doesn't work. He just closes the window, goes back to bed. Fuck this. And, uh, Burnham... Here we go. Uh, Burnham over here is Junior. He's uh, taking all the credit to Raul 
from the upstairs hallway. Sarah sees the men are occupied, so she makes a run for the bed to get her phone. She's got a little cell phone, a little flip phone, remember those things? Telling Sarah to close the door if she doesn't make it back. So she barely does. She's successful, but that was all for nothing because, well, the phone has no service in this room. Again, three feet of solid steel. You're having no service unless your fucking little modem setup has it. Or or security system has one. Who knows? 2002. Crazy times. Um, Burnham. Where are we at? No, sorry. So, when Jody goes out, it's all like, it's all played out in slow-mo. And even the audio is like mumbled down with the, with the, uh, the pace. Uh, big Shore, Howard Shore, his score. I liked Howard Shore's score in this movie. It's nothing groundbreaking, nothing to write home about, but it's good. It's good effort. Um, speaking of, Howard Shore chose to do this film after scoring the music to Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. And he wanted to take a, he wanted to take a smaller project after such a mammoth undertaking. But many of the people felt the Panic Room was one of Shore's darkest, most brooding thrillers, and I agree. I agree with that compared to the rest. Um, Yeah, like I said, it was all for nothing. No signal, and even Burnham knows that. However, Maid goes into the wall and grabs the main phone line. Now suddenly she's going to know how to splice these wires, wrap them together, match the colors, and have service. And that's what happens. Eureka! <laughs> <laughs> And that's what happens. <laughs> Calls 911 first, and she gets put on hold, which apparently is a thing. If there's enough phone calls put out, and there's only enough workers, what you're going to do, you could put them on hold. So they call, they hang up and call Steven, which is uh, Meg's father, and uh, no, Sarah's father, Meg's ex. Um, and yeah. I just have my notes here. Hey, kids, it's Nicole Kidman's voice. Uh, yeah, Meg, so then Meg rushes to get Sarah some sugar and continues to make her nervous by telling her to stay calm, even though her blood pressure is continuing to drop. And Junior starts having... Blood sugar. Blood sugar. Oh, I put blood pressure. Blood sugar, you're right, because she's diabetic. Um... Junior's starting to have doubts and finally gives up after being unable to find something for the, his pain. So he hands Burnham some cash, but accidentally re- accidentally reveals that he put away nine to eight, eight to nine hundred grand. But that's actually before taxes and such. There's actually more money in the safe than he initially disclosed and was trying to hide it from them. So while trying to relieve. Yeah. Raul surprises him with a shot to the head. Killing him. Yeah, it just shows No, he, he kills him and it just shows like how naive Junior was. Like, you know, ah, it's not working out. My face is fucked up. I don't have pain ki- uh, painkillers. I'm going home. No big deal, guys. Like, you know, he drug these guys out here and committed a felony. And he's going to give them like a couple hundred bucks and then, you know, obviously reveal he's lying to them the whole time. Just it just shows Junior is not a fucking criminal mastermind at all. Just he was there at the right place at the right time to be part of the family. <laughs> right. Makes sense. Yeah. Thank you, Jared Leto. 
please exit stage left, sir. So, unfortunately, Sarah watched this happen on the camera, and then she starts to panic, uh, so her mom has to console her, and, uh, yeah, mom's got to hold her, Steven arrives, gets his shit pushed in, now gets his shit kicked by, uh, Raul, <laughs> while Burnham tries to yell for him to stop, Raul's now in charge, since he's the man with the gun, by the way, I like that line earlier when he's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Raul. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I always liked about it. He's like, just, you know, he brings up that he's like just a bus driver guy that he found. But obviously there's something more to Raul that we don't know about. The fact that he's just willing to murder people so quickly. Uh, I don't, uh, yeah, I mean. Yeah, I got nothing. You're right. So I want a prequel of Raul. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say it now. I want a prequel. So menacing. I'll give him that. I'll give him that. So he orders Burnham at gunpoint to get them into the room upstairs. So he says he has an idea. And they show a bloody Steven on the camera as Burnham yells for them to open the door. Raul severely beats him, making sure Meg sees it on the camera. Uh, she's, uh, but meanwhile, Sarah is suffering from a seizure, uh, but her um, Klugagen, Klugagen syringes are in the bedroom. So we see her toe. Glucose, you mean? What is it? Uh, or, no, what's it? Not glucose. Um, Glucagen. Glu- insulin. Insulin. It's insulin, yes. I, I, I just tried yeah. sounding smart and sophisticated and dropping the actual word for it. But uh, yeah, it's insulin. And she goes out no, she, um, yeah, the, the syringes are in her bedroom, so then we see her toes clinch, uh, they, they're clinching up as she goes into shock and passes out. Meg runs out after Raul tricks her into thinking that it's safe, but when she goes out and comes back, this body is not the, it's, it's not Junior, it's actually Raul, he gets up. Um, re- pulled the switcheroo. Yeah, he takes off the ski mask. To reveal his face for the first time. Meg manages to throw the uh, med kit in just as Burnham closes the door. Inadvertently crushing Raul's hand since it didn't touch the uh, security laser. So she fucking pleads with the men to give Sarah the medicine. Which Burnham eventually does after ordering her downstairs first. He has Sarah help him as she's uh, struggling to stay awake. Uh, stand-up job from Case Stu here. Like, she's so young during the film of this, but I think she does a great job. Like... Yeah, she does. Like, when she's having the seizure, like, you feel it. Like, uh, she does a good job with the physicality of that part, making it look real. And just, like, the way her eyes are, and she just looks... I mean, Kristen Stewart always kind of looks dazed for in the, for the most part, so I guess it was, like, a good uh, role for her, but she really just looks out of it um, in a lot of the scenes. So, yeah, she did a good job. Yeah, dude. Dwight Yoakam's hand. He's fucked. Like, I can only imagine... Oh, yeah. The pain and misery he was suffering. Couldn't get anywhere. Four hours. I don't know. Yeah. He was selling it, too. Like, he did a good job. Like, just the, like, shock look on his face when it first closes. Like, Dwight Yoakam sells it right here. He does a pretty good job. That's probably how I'd be acting. 
Yeah. Um, see, so we get the scene here with this cop, and uh, she's doing her best to, you know, make it off that everything's okay because apparently the neighbors and uh, I guess the guy who got woken up called the cops after all before passing back out because you know they, they, she the the cop dude tells her that they've had you know calls or whatever from neighbors that are just concerned for her well-being and making sure everything's okay and so she's you know everything's fine yeah 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 you guys are good you guys are real good kind of you know compliment him and all that and he's like you know, man, everything's, it's any signs of trouble, blink three times. And she's just like, nope, no blinkies for Megan. Yeah? Is everything okay? You all right, ma'am? What do you, what time is it? It's, uh, it's a little after four. You got a call, ma'am? Somebody called you? we come in? What do you want? We'd like to come in. No, we can't come in. Ma'am, you sure you're all right? I'm fine. Ma'am, you don't look so good. You don't look so hot yourself, Officer King. Come on, I'm freezing out here. There are three. What? Your husband said you called for help. That you said there were three right before you got cut off. Oh, that phone call. And your neighbors across the courtyard called in about some loud shouts or loudspeaker of some kind. How's the TV? It's off now. Can I just ask you one question? Uh, what was the end of that sentence? Huh? When you said there are three, what was the rest? Look. My husband and I just split up. That's my first night in a new house. And then I was a little drunk. And the sentence, if you insist on knowing, was going to be, there are three things that I will do for you if you come over here and jump into bed with me right now. Thank God I came to my senses before I said all that and I hung up so nobody would ever have to know what I was thinking. Unless, of course, two policemen came to my door in the middle of the night and interrogated me. So, Rick, you want to go? Or do you want her to tell you which three things? Right. Ma'am. If there's something you want to say to us, but maybe you can't say it right now. You might want to make some kind of a signal. 
Like blinking your eyes a few times. Something like that. That's something you could do safely. You guys are good. So she tells him that they're they're good and then shuts the door, insisting that she's fine, cross her heart. Burnham will born meanwhile, Burnham warns Raul to stay the fuck away from him before he returns to uh trying to get the door open or the safe open rather. So Sarah sees her mother breaking all the cameras with the sledgehammer and Raul asks why the hell didn't they do that to begin with? <laughs> I know, I love that, because it is true. Like, it is. Why didn't they think of that? Like, just start breaking cameras. The one thing you should have done first, and then it did not happen. So she thinks to do it, and she does. So uh, Sarah's also seen hiding some of her needles in the pocket while she's practically sitting on her Medicaid case, or medical case. Uh, according to David Fincher, Kristen Stewart grew more than three inches during filming of this project. She was smaller than Jodie Foster before production started, and then she towered over her. I think she's an inch taller after uh, they wrapped. Hmm. So this... Mm. Nah, I'm not going to bring it up, because I'm not really... I've never, I was going to talk about Jodie Foster's like career, because it feels like she has these periods where she's like red hot... And then she'll go away for like five or six years. Maybe do a directorial job here and there. But other than that, just stay away from acting. And more recently, you know, she came back after a several year hiatus, however long it was, um, with a bunch of stuff. Yeah, I know. I see what, yeah, I know what you're saying. She's very um, much like just comes in streaks almost because some actors, you know, just consistently work. They're kind of always around, but yeah, I definitely see that. Like, she definitely gets, like, you know, obviously when Silence of the Lambs came out, like, she was red hot then, and then, you know, this is 10 years later, this kind of reinvigorated stuff. And then I, I remember that Brave One movie. That wasn't, like, a huge hit, but I remember that kind of, you know, like, uh, put her around. She was in that Hotel Artemis movie recently, wasn't she? Wasn't she in that, like, a more recent movie? Yes, actually. That was one of the first roles that she came back and, and did, actually. That's got a pretty big cast. Fucking my boy Deacon Batista is in that movie, amongst others. Yeah. But no, that's I, I like Hotel Artemis. It was a wasn't mad at it. Charlie Day's in it also. It played a weird role. Charlie Day is like a really weird, serious villain in that movie and it's like I don't know if it quite works for me. It's, it's I don't know. Nah. All right, so back to this. Burnham finally gets into the safe, and then he finds $22 million in bears. Bear bonds. Always bear bonds in these movies. Uh, the sticky bandits go to leave with their hand, with their bonds, using Sarah as their hostage, and uh, there's broken glass all over the bathroom that they're forced to walk through because everything else is locked. So this lets Meg know that they're coming. So Burnham's carries fucking 
No, Burnham carries Sarah over the glass because he's a good person over the, you know, deep down all this shit. Stephen reveals himself when he turns the lamp on and tells him to let his daughter go. Because that's right, fucking Meg, like, because he broke his arm when he gets attacked. And, like, Meg props his arm up, puts a gun in it, props it up with a lamp, and, like, tapes the gun and shit. It's kind of smart, actually. It's it's funny to think about, but like when you, you really think about it, it's kind of smart execution. Um, yeah, because you can't do anything else at that yeah. point. You know, she she kind of has like a little home alone thing because she's like breaking glass, closing stuff off. You know, sets up the um, you know her husband with the gun. So yeah, it's like a kind of a mini home alone type deal, almost. So yeah, Stephen re- re- Stephen reveals himself. Like I said. Um, and this is when Triple H, I mean Meg, fucking knocks Raul, <laughs> Raul over the railing with the sledgehammer down below. As Burnham escapes out the back, so Raul gets back upstairs, but Stephen misses and screams out when he's knocked over by Raul, which Burnham hears and stops running. The fight continues inside until Sarah uses her pens to jump on Raul, and she starts like shanking him like she's in fucking prison like she jumps on him and starts stabbing him and shit with her pens it's a very intense yeah. it's, it's a, like it's a, a tense moment overall this whole entire sequence here everything is going on together in one room um and then yeah just it's it just quite thrilling and suspenseful but you know something only seven shots are fired from a gun throughout the entire film all from Raul's Walter PPK. That's the one interesting little note that I found when I was doing some studying for this or research for this. Um, Burnham runs away as the cops enter the place, but he's caught right before he can jump over the back fence. He drops the bonds, which all blow away from the high winds, and the cop from earlier that didn't quite buy makes bullshit act... Uh, is seen as they come back with more power. Then again, the scene fades to black.
My note here is in a previous draft of the script, the final battle was completely different. Uh, Sarah is being held hostage in the panic room with Raul and Burnham. Maid gets out of the house, enters the house next door, um, breaks into the panic room through the divided wall with the sledgehammer and fights with Raul. So can you imagine her going next door, breaking through with a sledgehammer, <laughs> like one room to another with a sledgehammer? That would be so dumb. It's like... And why, it'd be the same thing. Like, why have the fucking panic room dude, then? Like, oh, that's a shared wall. We dude, can't reinforce she's like, that part. Dude, she's like five foot one. Come on. She put, she's not going through a fucking wall with a sledgehammer. <laughs> I just imagine her busting through like the fucking Kool-Aid man. Like, oh, oh yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> Raul. Yeah. Uh, sh- <laughs> That's funny as shit. Uh, or like she busts through and you just hear <laughs> time to play the game. Like, come on. That's so fucking stupid. Gotta get my spritz in first. Hang on. Uh, my yeah, so yeah, uh, the script back to the script here. Uh, Raul was killed by the panic room door slamming on his head, and Burnham is shot and killed by the police in the foyer of the house as he is fleeing. So Damn. we cut to a few days. Yeah, did you don't which and did you prefer? Do you prefer your first Whitaker <laughs> being dead or alive? I mean, I prefer alive. He wasn't a bad person. I mean, I, I will say I do like the idea of someone's head getting closed in the door. That's not, there's something to that idea, I guess. But yeah, the, they definitely made a good change. That, that ending just sounds fucking stupid. Just listening to it. It just sounds, it sounds like he came up with it like last minute, like, Hey, we need, uh, we need the script finish or panic room. Okay. Oh shit. Uh, Jody Foster busts through the fucking window or busts through the wall. Fucks up Raul, puts his head in the thing, and Whitaker's dead. <laughs> like that's just what it's like. He's just like fucking get that shit done in yeah. a few minutes. Uh, so a few days later at Central Park, Meg and Sarah search the newspapers for a new smaller home, happier and, mer- and uh, happier and ready to move on from the events that transpired. We'll never know if they found the place they were looking for, but we do know. We have reached the end of Panic Room. All right, let's talk box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250,000 American dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want receipts. So the film premiered on March 18, 2002. Hey, it's my brother's birthday. In L.A. before being released on March 29th, 2002 from Columbia Pictures. It opened up across 3,053 screens, grossing $30 million opening weekend. Of course, that's number one. Second weekend, it dropped... No, still number one. It dropped $18.2 million, though. Uh, negative... Uh, that was a 39.3% drop-off. The total gross for the film was $197.1 million against a budget of $48 million. So, being a pretty penny. No, it was a pretty big movie. Like, I, you know, it wasn't, like, huge. It, like, it's not culturally, blah, culturally significant or anything. 
but just at the time in 2002 it was a pretty big movie like every, i remember everybody talking about it like it was a pretty big hit i remember our screening being you know fairly busy if not sold out yeah and of course you know judging by these numbers that i was looking at earlier and the numbers i just said um the film had legs you know 30 million dollars opening weekend going on to gross 197.1 i mean that's 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 a lot dude that no film today is gonna ever do that nope unless you're avatar for part fucking four or something it ain't happening <laughs> so yeah and then the budget 48 million dollars so yeah it, it uh recouped its budget and then some Alright, let's take a walk to the Critics' Corner and see what everyone had to say about the film. It's got a Rotten Tomato score of 76%. That's based on 185 professional reviews, with the critical consensus saying, elevated by David Fincher's directorial talent and Jodie Foster's performance, Panic Room is a well-crafted, above-average thriller. Above average. It's got a Metacritic score of 65 out of 100, based on 36 reviews. Could not find a cinema score, but I did see that Ebe gave it three out of four stars. Not quite four, better than two. Describing the film as close to the ideal of a thriller uh, and existing entirely in a world of uh, physical and psychological plausibility. Ebert wrote that there are moments when I want to shout advice at the screen... But just as often, the characters are ahead of me. Uh, He also called Fincher a a visual virtuoso and applauded Foster's performance as spine-belling. Spellbinding. Spine-belling. What the hell was that? Spine-belling. (laughs) Spellbinding. Jesus Christ. Uh, Roper. Ebert's late or the late Ebert's partner, former partner, whatever you want to call him, Chicago Tribune, whatever. He said that it's one of the most ingenious and entertaining thrillers he's ever seen in quite a long time. Wall Street Times said Seven was stylishly gloomy and Fight Club was smart, smarmly pretentious, while Panic Room has been admired admirably stripped down to atmosphere as a function of architecture and action as a consequence of character. Morgan Stern recommended the characters Meg and Sarah as feminist heroines and also called the movie Invaders intriguing. He also applauded Foster's performance in the film's cinematography and he said to Kep's script as... And he said that Kep's script was... It all worked too well. I'm sorry, it all, let me rephrase that, the way it was worded. <laughs> and he said to, ke- it all worked a little too well. I know, and he said to kept script <laughs> like as all worked out too. 
It's weird. It's it's still even weird the way it's written. Anyway, Variety said that it's a thinking man's women in jeopardy picture. Panic Room does about as much as human humanly possible uh, with its deliberately restricted one setting premise. Meanwhile, the Austin Chronicle gave it a good review, I guess this is. Let's hope Fincher has enjoyed his vacation in Popcornopolis. Now may the real David Fincher, the black tar heart Dave Fincher, please resume his post in the Vanguard. <laughs> I don't, I'm not quite sure how to take that. Uh, the Chicago Tribune, Mark Caro says, Mark Caro says, Fincher mounts some clever, tense sequences in which the trio devices increasingly threatening strategies to force Meg and Sarah out of the panic room, only to be matched with improvised ingenuity from behind the vault door. And finally, from Rolling Stone, Peter Travers said, Foster nails the role given a tight, focused performance illustrated by shards of feeling. I'm sorry, illuminated by shards of feeling. All right, let's talk pros and cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. Let's talk the fun part of the episode. Uh, Coy, what are your pros? So I got a couple. Uh, the first one that stands out is the slick cinematography and directing. Uh, Fincher definitely elevated this movie. I think if it had just a mediocre or lesser director, I don't think we'd be even talking about this movie. Like I, I think it would just be another movie that came out in 2002. I don't think it would have been nearly as memorable or slick looking. I mean, he just... He pulls it off. Just the camera just moves through the house so fluidly. Yeah. Like, you know, it's very easy for a movie like this to just have a lot of cuts. Like, it just feels like we're cutting from this place to this place to this place within it's the like house. It's like his camera but has always, free range throughout the whole entire set. Yeah. It, it's like the, and it's like we're along for the ride. Like, the camera keeps moving throughout the set. We're seeing every single thing and we're just keep going. Um, keep going with the camera and it's just a lot of great angles too like it just feels very surveillance like even though it's not really the surveillance camera we're looking through obviously or it's not meant to be but uh, just a lot of the way it's shot and the angles like it just makes you feel like uh, we're on like a security cam watching this right. and following through everything so yeah he directed the shit out of this movie and I think it really shows uh, my next pro is just smart and grounded characters. Uh, you know, obviously, like, Junior is pretty stupid, but for the most part, everybody acts like a normal person, does what I think I would do or think to do in a situation. You know, I'm not sitting there like, oh, my God, that character just did that because we need another half an hour of this movie. There's no <laughs> situation like that. Like, everybody's making logical steps and taking actions I would actually take. Right. Uh, and, you know, it makes it just so much more believable, even though obviously some of it's not plausible, but it just it makes you feel for the characters and it, it gets me invested in the, you know, whole plot and story. Also, I think having a diabetic daughter, you know, Kristen Stewart um, or Sarah is pretty genius because otherwise, 
there would be no ticking clock. Like they could just sit in the room. It would take away a lot of the tension. So I think, you know, that's a good way of infusing the sense of urgency. Like we need to get out of this room. We need to get her medicine. You know, we need to do something. So I don't know. It's just very smart uh, as far as like that plot device and the writing goes of having the daughter be diabetic. Um, and then my last pro is strong cast. I mean, everybody's good in it. I mean, I call um, Jared Leto in this J fed just because he looks like fucking Kevin Federline to me. Like, and you know, Leto can be good in some stuff, but uh, can be annoying in others, but he pulled it off. Well, like he's supposed to be like the annoying dumbass in this movie. So Leto did great. Uh, Kristen Stort, uh, young Kristen Stort did awesome. I've always been a fan of Kristen Stort, even the twilight shit. I mean, she's always been good in stuff though, in my opinion. I agree. Um, Whitaker. Yeah. Whitaker is likable in this. Like uh, he nails it, you know, obviously not an angel. He's in here breaking in, trying to steal, uh, you know, the bear bonds, but he's still likable. He's still a decent person that comes through. Um, and obviously foster anchors the movie. Um, and Dwight Yoakam is Dwight Yoakam, <laughs> you know, huge fan of his. So yeah, strong performances, strong cast, top to bottom. That's it for me. All right. Uh, so for me, I wrote down pros. The single set location element really works. The gorgeous cinematography from Conrad Hall. State of the art opening credit sequence holds up just enough. Rare instance of a film with perfect casting. And we talked about the casting of uh, Forrest Whitaker. And of course, you know, there's that there's that of Jared Leto, Jodie Foster, who replaced Nicole Kidman. Can you imagine a film with a finished product with Nicole Kidman and not Jodie Foster? How about this? Your your favorite person, Hayden Panettiere, and uh, her mother as played by... Uh, <laughs> Like that, I've already slipped my mind. Uh, Nicole Kidman, sorry. Can you imagine that movie? <laughs> yeah, it might not have been there open a night. <laughs> it would have been there the final <laughs> no, weekend. Um, yeah. Nice comeback role for Jodie Foster, speaking of which. And uh, and yeah, just the overall runtime, the flow, the pace of the film. It just, it's, it's a positive. It all works for me. So... Uh, cons. I just, I just have one. I'll just knock mine out real quick, then you can finish it up. Uh, just a couple of sequences that slaps plausibility in its face. In its face. And other than that, like, nope. I mean, it's not the perfect film, but you know, I just couldn't think of any cons really. I mean, it's a really, 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 really good film. So. About you, yeah, agreed. Uh, my major one that's always stood out to me, eh, and I know why obviously they had to do it, but you know, you have this panic room, it's stocked up with all this shit. I find right. it very hard to believe there wouldn't be some sort of sugar, something sweet that uh, you know, Sarah Kristen Sort's character could eat to keep her blood sugar up. Uh, you know, you, they have food, they have all this stuff, like it's a well-stocked millionaire's safe room. I I would just be very surprised they didn't have anything for eat. Obviously, I know why, because it, like I said before, it adds that ticking clock. It adds the urgency and the reason for, you know, them to leave the panic room. 
at all. So I get that, but I don't know. It's just always stood out to me. I'm like, not a granola bar, not a fucking Snickers, nothing like, you know, nothing in that room. You know, I just find that uh, very implausible. I, I, I mean, I guess if it was me, like you kind of almost don't need want anything in the room. Like, Hey, it was cleared out when they bought the house or something like that. And they just never even really put anything in there. You know, the fact that it has like these totes and all this shit, but no sugar or no sweets or anything. I don't know. Just kind of didn't make much sense to me. So that was the biggest one. And then my next con is kind of a minor one, but I wish the villains were a little more intimidating. Like Raul and obviously he's like the main, you know, antagonist in the movie. But I kind of wish maybe the junior character or maybe if there's a fourth character, because obviously Forrest Wicker is like the likable everyman in this situation. And then Raul, you know, Dwight Yoakam is like the main bad guy. But I kind of wish there was a little bit more intimidating. I wasn't super worried about Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart in the movie just because... I was like, well, you got a nice guy who's smart. And then you got two kind of dumb guys. Like, I don't know. They just didn't seem, it didn't seem like that threatening until kind of the end. Once you learn more about Raul and Dwight Yoakam, then he's a little bit threatening, but I don't know. I I, I wish there was a little more threat. I I wish maybe like the junior character, right? maybe while being dumb, maybe had a little bit more of a physical presence or something like that. Just to up the ante a little bit more. Yeah, I see what you mean. uh, In my opinion. So, but that's it for me. Nothing major. I mean, for what this movie is, there's really not a whole lot you can improve on. I mean, it's pretty airtight, in my opinion, as far as this type of movie goes. Yeah. All right. Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? So, I would change uh, the finale to where the cops don't conveniently break in to save the day based on chance. Maybe have, like, Whitaker take out Yokum so he could have his up uh, come up into something like that. Like, I felt Whitaker, like, redeemed himself enough to deserve at least that. Like, he never even does anything too terrible in this movie other than break a dozen laws and try to steal from someone. But other than that, you know, he's just... uh just a big, dumb, opie teddy bear in this movie. Big, cuddly teddy bear, basically. Who, uh, yeah, he's, he's just in the wrong place at the wrong time, really. That's that's how I look at it with Whitaker in this movie, his character, at least. So, but yeah, getting back to my point, I would change the finale. Um, I'm just not quite sure how I would change it, other than what I had listed here. So, yeah. I'll, I'll keep thinking about that. How about you? What's your mulligan moment? You know, I'll, I'll preface this. I don't, I'm splitting hairs. I really don't necessarily have one. Like nothing really stood out to me as, oh, I'll definitely change that or fix that. But mine's similar to yours. The ending, I just, I, yeah, I don't, I wish the police didn't just come back and barge in. I could have did without that. I don't think the movie necessarily needed that. Um, and I know why they had Forrest Whitaker get caught, but I would have kind of almost just been fine if he came back, helped them, and then just kind of disappeared into the night. You know, I know I know probably why they did it. Like, ah, crime doesn't pay. You know, he gets caught, even if he is a good guy. Um, but I'd have been okay. Like, he comes back, helps defeat Raul, uh, and then 
goes on his merry way with his uh you know bearer bonds i i i'd have maybe liked that a little bit better i'm not saying i always need like a happy ending necessarily but i felt bad for the guy like, you know he comes back to save him because a lot, a lot of people wouldn't they had 22 million dollars in their coat they wouldn't be going back for a perfect stranger essentially so you know he's obviously a good dude and then he gets caught and now he's going to jail so i don't know it's just a minor thing um nothing major that stood out but yeah i would just change the ending a little bit as well all right finger looking good finger licking good uh for me it's operation insulin <laughs> this is when the film's at its peak intensity for me and it just works overall we uh talked about it back in the plot the breakdown and uh for me it's just the best part um of the film so there you go yeah I, that part stood out to me too but i actually did something a little bit different so my uh Ooh. finger looking good is the initial break-in scene. And that's just down to like the slick camera work mm-hmm. and effects. That first shot, the uh, pans down the living room area. It's nice. Yeah. It's just such an inventive way to have them breaking in mm-hmm. other than just, you know, boom, you just see a guy, he's busting the window or whatever. Uh, it, it just stood out. It, it was very, very well done. Um, just an awesome way to um, make such a mundane or not necessarily exciting thing just stand out that much more so like rewatching it that was i actually like went back and rewound and watched it again like it was that interesting to me i was like oh wow this looks really cool i forgot how awesome this was so yeah like the initial break-in scene just the camera work and the effects and direction um everything just blends together perfectly in that part for me all right Let's talk about our movie MVPs. All right. Now, you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is... Uh, Corey, who'd you put down for your MVP for this film? I mean, I feel like for most people, it would be Jodie Foster, and I can't necessarily argue that. Like, she definitely holds down this film. Like, she's... Uh, very uh, sympathetic, very smart. She acts like a mom. Um, you know, she's just kind of like an every woman. So she, her performance definitely elevates this movie. But for me, I had to pick Dwight Yoakam. I just am such a huge fan of Dwight Yoakam as Raul in this. He's just an actor. I wish he was in more stuff. Every time he pops up in anything, I'm always excited. You know, like he was the doc in the crank movies. I remember right. um, he was in, uh, what was it? Uh, Sling Blade. Yeah, man. Wasn't that was, it? A, was, that was his Blade first thing? acting role, Sling Blade, man. Yeah. And he was just awesome. Like, you know, who knew that like this then, uh, uh, musician just comes in. For those, he was in that Newton Boys. Newton Boys, yeah. And for those like four or five minutes in the opening of uh, Wedding Crashers with uh, Rebecca De Mornay. Yep. Wedding crashers. I mean, just everything he's in, you know, even if it's like a, a smaller role, he's great. in. I just wish I saw him in more things. Uh, but this was always one of my favorite performances of his. He just, it could just be such a nothing generic character in Raul, you know, he's wearing a ski mask half the time or most of the most time. Of the time yeah. um, and you don't get any kind of backstory, but just Dwight Yoga is just kind of odd and new unique in this 
And there's just something off. Like if I was just near this guy, Raul, I could tell like just something's not quite right. Like this dude's a weird dude. So I think Dwight Yoakam just completely embodies that. Um, and, you know, even though he's not like menacing physically or anything like that, you just get that like just he's not fucking around like he's could be just like a mass murderer type vibe. And that's what I got. And I just love the name too, Raul. Just such a fucking weird name, like for Dwight Yoakam. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It just, it always stood out. But yeah, like when I think of this movie, he is like one of the first things I always thought about was uh, Dwight Yoakam as Raul. So he's my MVP. But like I said, I can't argue with Jodie Foster either. Yeah. For me, it's um, Forrest. It's, you know, but. Shout out the case to as a close runner up, very close. Kristen Stewart is really, really good as a little little itty bitty child actor compared to how she is now. But no. Um, all jokes aside, she she just knocks it out of the park. Um she actually looks like someone who wants to give a damn about the role she's playing. And I like that. And but overall, this is Forrest Whitaker, uh, just tour, tour de force, man. I I just think he's just a fucking one man wrecking crew throughout this movie, and like it, 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 I just think he just, quite frankly, kills it. You know, he's my favorite character in this movie, and uh, I, I think his portrayal is just spot on. So can't do no but you can't you really can't do much better than that for uh, the way i look at it so uh all right so getting all that out of the way it is time to wrap it all up and deliver our final thoughts slash ratings i say we uh tie a bow on it and put her to bed I'll, i'll go real quick and knock it out so for me i'm giving this three and a half stars while I really, really, really fucking enjoyed this, it's not really a film that warrants a rewatch anytime soon. It's more of a one and done for a while. I think that's why it's been so long since I last watched it now. Like I said, don't get me wrong, this movie is really good and obviously deserves a recommendation from yours truly, but I'm not coming back to it anytime soon and that knocks it down about a half star for my final rating. And yeah, that's that. How about you? Yeah, so mine is the same rating, three and a half out of five. You know, for what this movie is, I mean, it's just about perfect, honestly. Uh, You know, it's a conventional crowd pleaser, suspense type movie. Uh, And it's perfect at that, you know. So that's why I gave it three and a half. Uh, I mean, it has a slick coat of paint, obviously, with the direction, cinematography, good writing. Uh, And it's just an easy to recommend movie. Like I said, pretty much anybody can watch this. I remember my parents liked the movie when it, um, I remember when it first came out, I liked it. My brother said like, just everybody can kind of like it. I think everybody can either identify with like the Kristen Stewart character or the Forrest Whitaker character or the mom. You know, I just think there's something there for everybody. It's just one of those movies with very wide appeal, just very easy to sit down and watch. You know, you don't have to, uh, pay uh, super close attention. There's no intricate story, just very simple woman and her daughter, three dudes want to get inside, get the money, just very simple, executed uh, very well. Um, so that's how 
um, I always think of this movie, like you said, it's nothing that I would ever like go back and keep rewatching. I don't think I've seen this movie since it first came out on DVD or possibly when I saw it in theater. I really can't remember <laughs> rewatching this movie because it's one of those things. Once you've seen it, you've seen the tricks. It's already done. You know, there's really mm. no need to go back to it. Uh, but if you haven't yeah. checked it out, you know, even if you've listened to this and we spoiled everything, I would still recommend watching it because it's a lot better than, uh, you know, just hearing us talk about it. It's not one of those movies where if you kind of know what's going to happen, it's going to be spoiled. I think you can still enjoy it and feel those tense moments um, and just be there with the characters. So, yeah, just uh, basic, easy movie, just super well done. So three and a half out of five for me. All right. Well, this episode is sponsored by Vortex Home Security, Upper West Side's top flight security company. They swear they won't send any <laughs> shady employees to do your installations. So call now. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for David Fincher's Panic Room, a film that 100% gets that full film effects seal of approval. And that will bring things over for this edition of the show. One down, many more to follow. Check out our ever-growing collection of previous episodes over at our website, which is thefilmeffectpodcast.com. And please follow us on the following social media platforms for future announcements and all up-to-the-minute updates. We're on Facebook and Instagram at The Film Effect Podcast. We're on Twitter at Film Effect Pod. We're on TikTok at Film Effect Podcast. And finally, you can send over any emails that you may wish, desire, want to the film effect podcast at gmail.com. Uh, it would be amazing if you took the time to send us a five star rating or positive review or just an honest review in general. Like, let us know how we're doing, what we can change, what we're, what are some films you want us to start, you know. What are some other films you want us to give the full film effect treatment to? Stuff like that, you know? Whether it's an Apple or we're on Spotify or directly on our website at thefilmeffectpodcast.com slash reviews. Just however you want to drop us some feedback is entirely up to you guys. But we genuinely want to hear from you guys. So please just do us a solid. Leave us some feedback after you're done listening. It'll only take a minute of your time and it'll it'll do more than you may know. It'll do a lot more for us. Just please help a brother out. And that's going to do it for the show. It's another episode of the Film Effect Podcast in the bag, baby. Corey, as always, thank you, brother. Yeah, no problem. Always good time. I, I It's a movie I probably wouldn't have revisited on my own. So, you know, I was glad to rewatch it well like this week we've got two brand new episodes planned for next week that i think you're gonna like there are a couple of comedies one of which is also uh celebrating its 20th anniversary released the same day as panic room in fact Tuesday, we're going to be talking about the cult classic dan Aykroyd horror comedy nothing but trouble and then Thursday is the 20th, not the actual day, but Thursday we'll be talking about the 20th anniversary of the underrated dark comedy Death to Smoochie, which ironically enough also does not have a proper Blu-ray release here in the States. So, yeah. yeah. It's a shame too, 
because that's a good movie. I'm a huge fan of um, Danny DeVito as a director. I think he's underrated uh, behind the lens, in my opinion. We just did the. I think he's only done nothing but trouble, if I'm not mistaken. Huh? I said Danny DeVito, not Dan Aykroyd. Oh, shit. <laughs> I don't think Dan Aykroyd is I'll, underrated I was gonna at all. Say, I think I think nothing but trouble is exactly the problem when you give Dan Aykroyd a budget and just say go ham. You end up with a fucking I was like diaper baby Dan Aykroyds and uh, fucking like, weird hot dogs and Tupac Shakur singing. Oh man, I was like, did I just hear yeah. what I think I just heard? Anyway, yeah, uh, just next week, guys. Two episodes, two for the price of one. Alright, until then, as always, it's been fun, but now it's done. Say goodbye, Corey. Bye, everybody. Alright, take care now. Bye-bye. This concludes our broadcast day.